The latest episode of the Next 5 podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of the Next 5 wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the podcast hosted by the bloggers of FT Alphaville. If you want to know more about us, come visit us at ftalphaville.ft.com, where you can also leave us feedback. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is being recorded on Thursday, November 10th. I'm Cardiff Garcia, and I'm a New York-based writer for FT Alphaville. Our guest today is Sal Arnick, co-head of Themis Trading and the former head of sales and trading at Instanet. Sal's been raising concerns about high-frequency trading for the last couple of years, and that's going to be the subject of our chat today. Sal, thanks for doing this. Cardiff, thanks for, thanks for having me. So I want to start by doing something a little bit different at the top of the podcast by essentially giving away the ending. I'm just going to list some of the reservations that you've had about high-frequency trading in the last couple of years, as I understand them. And then you can let me know if it's a comprehensive list or if I've left any out. And then we're going to spend the rest of the podcast just getting to each of these reservations and fleshing them out a bit. But this way, our listeners will have some sense of where we're going. So here we go. One is that rather than providing liquidity in times of stress, high-frequency trading actually contributes to liquidity problems, amplifies them, makes them worse. And high-frequency trading firms can actually change rapidly from being liquidity providers to liquidity demanders. Second, relatedly, this kind of behavior increases the chances that we'll end up with another flash crash or that if another flash crash begins for another reason, high-frequency traders will actually make it worse. Third is an issue of fairness. If you're an institutional investor and you place an order with a broker, it used to be that the broker would simply execute the order through an exchange. Now the exchanges actually will sell your information to high-frequency trading firms to put into their models and predict your behavior. Fourth, transparency. Some of these firms seem to never have a down week or a down month, and because their formulas are so obscure, that's kind of the point, we don't really know what they know. Fifth is something called latency arbitrage, which is to say that there's a difference between the public quote for a stock or a security that everyone sees at the same time, and then a second quote, a second speed, that only high-frequency trading firms see and trade on. And we'll talk about how that works. Six is that sometimes high-frequency traders stress the system, stress the exchanges. They engage in quote stuffing, among other things, and they don't really have to pay for this. Maybe they should. Seventh, high-frequency trading has contributed to higher volatility and correlation, and in fact, it's led to a skewing of the traditional relationship between volatility and correlation, and we'll get into that. Finally, Because high-frequency trading has compressed bid-ask spread so much, it's essentially rendered the business model of smaller regional brokerage houses to be worthless, to be obsolete. And as a result, you have many fewer small company IPOs than you used to, at least as a percentage of total IPOs. Did I leave any out? Uh, No, you you certainly said a mouthful. All right, great. Uh, So we're going to take some time to get to each of these. My first question, though, is is to take a step back and to get really basic. I think some of our listeners, even even very sophisticated ones who are heavily involved in financial markets or at least whose lives are touched by them, may not actually have a clear understanding of exactly what high-frequency trading is. So why don't you give us a brief synopsis of what high-frequency trading firms do, how they trade, and maybe an example of one or two of their strategies? Well, high-frequency trading, everyone seems to have a different definition. And to tell you the truth, there is no one definition, but certain characteristics of the type of trading is that it's automated. It's just high-speed, automated trading strategies with various purposes. Well, the purposes are all to make money, but there are different strategies and styles. And one of the most predominant styles is market-making, which is an evolution of the old you know, NASDAQ market maker who stands there ready to buy and sell a stock, 1,000 shares up with a spread. I'll buy them here. I'll sell them there. And that spread would be the VIG that an investor would pay the market maker's reward for providing that liquidity. Well, this model has changed and automated quote-unquote market makers, and I say quote-unquote because I have a hard time calling someone who's providing a flickering 100-share 
up one penny, two penny wide quote that's so rapidly changing as being a market maker. Right. It doesn't fit with the traditional understanding of, of what a market maker does, that's for sure. It certainly doesn't. And to tell you the truth, talking about spreads in our current microstructure, and when you talk about a market maker, someone who's ready to stand and buy and sell a stock at a spread at a specific point in time and willing to stand there and commit capital is different than the spreads that you see flickering, the penny-wide spreads that everyone in the industry seems to say, well, look, spreads have never been more narrow. This is great for investors. We have an order-driven market now as opposed to a market-making market. So the fact that orders are coming from thousands of places by firms with automated strategies and they're being entered and they're being canceled 90 95% of the time before you can even react to the quote to us, that's not quite market making. But regardless, market making is probably the largest category of what you know folks nowadays tend to term high frequency trading. Okay. So that's the you know the the biggest bucket, if you will, of high frequency trading. Then there are other styles also. There's statistical arbitrage, which really hasn't changed over time. And if a stock is trading higher in one market than in another market, there's an arbitrage to short it in the in the richer market and buy it in the cheaper market. Obviously, that contributes to efficiency, and that's one of the second buckets of high-frequency trading. But there's a third category, which is a little bit more detrimental, and it's the category that we first started looking at as affecting institutional trading costs, which is momentum ignition, order detection, and the more predatory styles of high-frequency trading. What do you mean by predatory styles of high-frequency trading? Well, the game on Wall Street has never changed, right? You know, everyone wants to know where the buyers and where the sellers are, and if they can ascertain that there's more buyers than sellers, day traders or short-term traders will try to step in front of those orders and on a short-term basis buy them and sell them back a little bit richer. But the techniques have gotten very sophisticated, and if the techniques were just efficient adjustments made by market participants, i.e. they have better computers, they've written programs that help them read the tape better, that would be one thing, all right? But instead, we have a system where these short-term traders and this, this type of strategy has really gotten ingrained and into the folks that create the rules in our markets. And that's created a situation where this type of trading is really become more damaging. And since it's amplified with thousands of orders delivered in seconds, um, the effects can be outsized, especially in tapes that are moving. Okay. And I, I do want to talk about market fragmentation at length because I know that's a favorite topic of yours. But just one more time, I'm going to read from another longish list and then I'll shut up and get back to asking questions. But I think this is really interesting. So recently, Andy Haldane of the Bank of England wrote a paper called The Race to Zero that I thought did a really nice job of summarizing just how much the trading infrastructure has changed in the last decade or so. So I'm going to read a few items from that paper. And again, this is from Andy Haldane, and we'll pop this up on the website. So here we go. First, the average speed of order execution on the New York Stock Exchange has fallen from about 20 seconds a decade ago to around one second today. In 2005, high-frequency trading accounted for less than a fifth of U.S. equity market trading volume. Now it's somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters. That number is actually a bit ambiguous. I've seen estimates ranging from 50 to 75%, but one way or the other, it's a lot higher than it used to be. In Europe, that number is closer to 35% of the equity market, but that's up from nothing a decade ago. And it's also starting to creep into debt markets, foreign exchange, futures. The trading share of the New York Stock Exchange in NYSE listed securities has fallen from 80% in 2005 to about 24% now. In the UK, the market share of the London Stock Exchange has fallen from two-thirds in June 2008 to less than a third today. As of right now, the fastest trade execution speed is around 10 microseconds. That's 10 millionths of a second. Next up for these traders are nanoseconds and then something called picoseconds or trillionths of a second. And finally, Haldane talks about the historical relationship between volatility and correlation, as I mentioned earlier. Both have been climbing, but... In the past, they've held to a pretty tight relationship where when volatility went up a certain amount, correlation would also climb by a certain amount. But since 2005, the amount of correlation you get for a given volatility is at a historic high. And his point is that high-frequency trading might be having a disproportionate impact on correlations in the last half decade or so. Now, none of these is itself alarming, but they all give some sense of how much things have changed. So my next question is this. Tell us how we got here in the last decade or so. 
You spoke at the Big Picture Conference about a perfect storm of three things that got us here. So tell us what they are. Well, the three things we spoke about at the Big Picture Conference were, you know, first of all, the perfect storm of regulation, which kind of began with Reg ATS in the late 90s, followed by decimalization, moving to decimals, as pennies as the minimum increment in 2001, and, and Reg NMS, which was proposed in 2004, uh, late 2004, early 2005, but not implemented till late 2007. And I'll take you through what those regulations are in a minute. But the perfect storm of that regulation technological advances, quite frankly, our server technology and the fiber technology and the ability to go fast, as well as, and this is key, the transformation of exchanges to for-profit public entities. Those three things have all combined, and some people say it's a perfect storm. And I would argue that, you know, perhaps it wasn't a perfect storm as much as a perfect plan to create this fragmented mess, this broken vase, which is our market structure today. And how did we get here? And let me describe that broken vase. You know, if you go back 10 years or 12 years or 13 years, investors, they'd have, whether it's in mutual funds or through an online Schwab or Fidelity account, you'd enter an order and you'd want to buy or sell shares of stock. And those orders would be delivered or given to a broker dealer who would participate as members in a non-for-profit member-owned exchange you know, be it the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ, which were the big two. And there were certainly a couple of regional exchanges, the Coast out in San Francisco or, you know, the Philadelphia or the Boston Stock Exchange. But for the most part, it was a duopoly. Today, an investor, whether it's retail or it's a mutual fund or a pension fund or a hedge fund, those orders get sent through this sausage factory where your order can go to any number of 13 different exchanges and 40 dark pools, and the person who's sending the order has so little control over where that order is going to go and get executed because there's conflicted mess and smart order routers which send the order not to where it's going to get best execution necessarily, but where it makes sense from the economics perspective of the broker-dealer. And what do I mean the economics perspective? I mean that there is this make-or-taker system of commissions that are in place among exchanges, and there are different economic rates, you know, a free execution, a rebated execution um, in dark pools, so that your order is going to go not where it gets the best execution, but where it's going to maximize um, the minimizing of cost or, in in fact, generation of rebates for the broker-dealers involved. And that creates this fragmented mess. That, that's what you mean by fragmentation. So a minute ago, you mentioned REG NMS. That's REG National Market System. There was a European equivalent, of course, the Markets in yep. Financial Instruments Directive or Mifid, I guess, sort of a horrible nickname. Yeah. Talk about REG NMS and how it contributed to all this or just about some of the regulations that led to the kind of fragmentation you're talking about. Well, sure. And when we start talking about how we got here, I think it's useful to talk about the regulation. But before you can even talk about the regulation, it's useful to talk about the culture. There was this history, this short-term trading mentality and culture, which initially was considered the enemy. It had morphed into the for-profit exchange culture that we see right now. And the exchanges right now, instead of curtailing that type of behavior, their whole business models are bent and dependent upon arming those business models via co-location. Co-location is basically the exchanges renting out a space or access to be a little bit closer and a little bit faster to the action than everybody else. If you can give a, a quick example of that, so NYSE has this large data center in, in Mawa, New Jersey. And the other exchanges have them in Jersey City. And ironically, New Jersey, where our firm is, has become a hotbed and has become the center of the universe for so many of these large stock exchanges. And in the commodities markets, this is also taking place with the CME in Chicago. But the stock exchanges, which your mom and your father and you and I remember from an earlier day, which we've seen in movies from like Trading Places or the movie Wall Street were a bustling floor where traders um, competed to get the best prices for their investors by meeting in a central location. That's gone. The, the stock exchange, it might as well be a museum. Where the action really takes place is in these data centers. 
And who's trading in these data centers? Automated robots, these high-frequency firms that pay millions of dollars a year for the right to have their server at the exchange so that they can be a millisecond faster than somebody else or five microseconds faster than somebody else. And why is it important to be faster than somebody else? Again, it depends on the strategy. Like in the market-making strategy, it's important to be that much quicker because you want to be at the top of the queue so that you can be the top of the bid list so you can get a rebate if it's going to trade there and then simultaneously be at the top of the offer list so you can get a rebate there and capitalize on this rebate arbitrage. So that's the market-making side. The predatory side is you want to be able to beat other traders to the quote, like the SOS bandits. And this is the part of the high-frequency trading we have the biggest issue with. So first of all, the exchanges have drastically changed, and regulation has been enacted from Reg ATS to make the marketplace more quick. And the people who crafted Reg ATS, the lawyers at the SEC, and who crafted decimalization, they were very much of the mindset to get trading as fast as possible and to help that agenda. That moving to Reg NMS, Reg NMS, or uh, National Market System, basically made the New York Stock Exchange from a slower auction market to a fast market. So the reason that you see New York Stock Exchange volume uh, or market share plummet from 80% to, say, 20% in New York Stock Exchange listed stocks is because, you know, the abolition of rules like 15C3, where initially New York Stock Exchange members had to trade New York Stock Exchange stocks or 15C3 eligible stocks on the floor. They weren't allowed to trade them upstairs. With that regulation gone, and with the New York Stock Exchange converting to a fast market and converting into this data center mentality and creating MAWA, all right, the speed of trading was drastically increased. Sure, and, and one of the themes that you've been hitting on is how this creates a conflict of interest with the exchanges. So talk about this idea that the exchanges will actually sell some of the information around the orders placed by institutional investors. How does that work and what happens to it? Where does it go and how does it get traded on? Well, ironically, we came out with a paper last year which kind of went viral and we didn't expect that it would, but it was picked on you know, rather quickly by the media and it was called Latency Arbitrage or Data Theft on Wall Street was the name of the paper. And basically exchanges were providing enriched data feeds and they do that now and they always have. But these enriched data feeds have more information than the public tape. So when you think of the public tape, you think, okay, I just bought 300 shares of IBM at $186. So you would expect on the public tape, you know, the old ticker tape that used to go across on the bottom of screens, 300 shares, $186, IBM, the exchange, New York Stock Exchange, and the price or the time, 10.19 in the morning, all right? That's what's available, and that's what is in the public domain for investors to look at. The enriched data feeds have much greater information. It has cancels, revisions. The exchanges were actually not making non-unique order identifiers, and the non-unique order identifiers on this feeds were tied and given the exact same code as the executions. So for the most part, high-frequency trading firms could write programs to take in these feeds and figure out that someone is accumulating one buyer, large amounts of stock. And then hidden orders, which were something used by institutions to lessen their market impact, when a high-frequency trader interacted with a hidden order, the hidden order was actually disclosed as a hidden order and tied back to the original order so that someone could essentially take – it was almost like a DVR recorder and being able to ascertain that someone had bought 316,000 shares of IBM in the last 19 minutes. That's valuable information. And as that's happening, and as the high-frequency trading firms were using these enriched data feeds, it was costing investors money. It was leaking information that while it was in the contract that, you know, NASDAQ and BATS owned this information, I don't think investors, and certainly not institutional investors, were aware that their order revision and all these other fields were being delivered out to the marketplace on a for-profit basis. Yeah, let me ask 
a couple of follow-ups on that. One is that these firms are sort of famously opaque. So how do we know that this is happening? And are there legal issues around this and what's being done about it? You know, we're, we're a small, simple firm. We don't do any prop trading. We're a small firm in New Jersey with limited institutional clients. And when we would enter orders, our orders tend to be large. They're not, you know, retail orders. They're not 500 shares. They're substantially larger than that. And when we would trade and we would enter an order, whether it was hidden or in a way that we would not imagine that it was being disclosed, and we started seeing abnormal price movements around them, well, clearly we have a best execution mandate, and we started to dig under the plumbing and look for answers so that we could improve our performance and make sure we're doing the right things for our clients. And in the process, we started digging into the actual documents you know, from the exchanges, going to their websites, looking at exactly, you know, what is the itch 4.1 feed? How does it work? What are the fields that are being populated on the feed? And it really took us out of our element, which is trading stock, putting together buyers and sellers, sourcing liquidity, to really putting on a computer engineering hat, which was new to us and certainly was challenging. But that's what prompted our own noticing of wiggle around our orders and us wanting to get to the bottom of it to fix it. You want to keep talking about how we got to where we are? You've gone through Reg NMS. Well, well, sure. So it was the perfect storm of this, you know, each time our government entities, the SEC and the on-site regulators at the exchanges, they would institute regulations to protect the small investor. So, for example, you know, Reg ATS, which mandated all orders to the quote, it created smaller spreads and created more trading volume. And decimalization, which created smaller spreads and more trading volume. And Reg NMS, the unintended consequences, or perhaps intended, from those regulations, combined with the technological prowess and the ability to write very complex code and essentially figure out a way to, uh, in an automated fashion, DVR the market and act on it, combined with a market structure which is geared to arm these players, that's created this very high-speed, dangerous market and the fragmentation I spoke of earlier. And I think we've actually, in the process, as I'd hoped, we've actually hit on quite a few of the reservations that you'd expressed before and and which I listed at the top. One that I think your partner at Themis, Joe Saluzzi's talked about quite a bit is this idea that high-frequency trading, because it's compressed spread so much, it sort of ended the small company IPO. And it might be a little bit, you know, of an exaggeration, but certainly there's there's many fewer of them than we used to have. You talk about that for a minute because I think that's something that a lot of people aren't aware of. Sure, and this gets to the heart of it because it's at some point the industry insiders and the regulators focusing on improving trading, they've lost sight of the original purpose of the stock market. The reason we have a stock market is to raise capital, to facilitate capital formation for young companies so that they can grow. They can grow, expand capacity, hire people, real growth, economic growth, right? So anyhow, that's originally, if you go read the SEC's mandate of what their purpose is, even on their own website, the SEC's number one or most important purpose is to help facilitate capital formation. And it's been abandoned. And I'll tell you how. While no system or no market structure was perfect, so certainly no one liked wide spreads. You know, no one liked that they, if they had to sell the stock, they had to sell it at 18 and a quarter. And if they had to buy it, they had to buy it at 1850. All right. Those spreads created an economic incentive for brokerage firms to, while no one likes the spread mechanism of prior market structures of wide spreads, in other words, they don't want to sell it at 18 and a quarter and have to buy it at 1850 and that friction is too high. At some point, and I would argue it's less than a quarter point spread, but a certain spread gave economic incentive for broker dealers to support and bring companies public. And when you bring a company public, you have to, you know, walk them through the process. You have to match their need for funds with brokerage firms' access to high net worth individuals and investors and put them together and create an IPO. Uh, I mean, think about this. Intel and Microsoft were both IPOs that were under $10 million when they were brought public. 
and that's an amazing stat. All right. These IPOs, you know, the brokerage firms, when they bring them, they require cultivation, providing research, all right, telling their story, getting their story out to different folks. And again, sourcing investor funds and putting them together with those who need capital. What's happened is because spreads have been driven down and the market has become focused on speed trading, there is no profit margin for firms to continue to do that process. So, so many of the regional brokerage firms that we've seen in the 1980s and 1990s, you know, all the West Coast brokerage firms in the United States that were very tied to Silicon Valley, whether it's Montgomery or Robbie Stevens or Morgan Keegan in the Southeast, firms that were very close to healthcare or to, you know, with a specialty in technology and bringing companies public, the economic incentive for them to do that disappears or is diminished drastically. And as a result, they go out of business and there's a void. And this is the void you see. So certainly IPOs have gone down in recent years and in, in the last you know, 15 years for many reasons. You know, one of them being Sarbanes-Oxley and, and regulation making it more expensive for small companies to come public and for brokerage firms to provide research for them. But on top of Sarbanes-Oxley, on top of a dot-com bubble burst, those two do not explain completely the IPO degradation that we've seen over the last 15 years. I want to ask you about the flash crash and the role of high-frequency trading in it. The CFTC and SEC have had a couple of goes at trying to explain exactly what happened. Um, To my knowledge, we still don't have a very clear explanation. We have a sense that high-frequency trading certainly exacerbated what happened if, if it wasn't exactly the direct cause. But Do you want to just give us your own brief overview of of what happened and what the role of high-frequency trading was in the flash crash? Well, certainly. I think, the first of all, the SEC's first pass was almost shameful. And they made a point of pointing out a Midwestern mutual fund and a 9% of volume order in the world's most liquid instrument, the S&P E-mini futures, and said that's the reason the irresponsible entering of that order is what started the mess that would ensue in moments after. And they ignored many of the other market-structured issues that really were responsible for the flash crash. The second pass was a little bit better. All right. What happened on that day? A market under stress, much like you saw yesterday, as a matter of fact, um, where markets that have come to depend on high-frequency trading for market makers, for penny-wide spreads, for, you know, very, you know, larger sizes in the quote, the market has become, had become very complacent with that facility staying there and not changing. And what happened is during periods of stress, and certainly on the day of May 6th, market makers, they widened their quotes. The depth of book thinned out well before the 240 flash crash events that ensued. The, the depth of book was thinning out all day. And what happened is when, when one large e-mini order came into the market, okay, and it wasn't large, but it was large because high-frequency traders were able to use things like data feeds and some of the things we talked about that they're armed with from the exchanges and their speed. They're attempting to ascertain that there was a footstep of a large seller and step in front of it. And they stepped in front. And then the next one stepped in front. And an already depleted limit order book was absorbing the predatory high-frequency traders taking advantage of a mutual fund e-mini order. And as that happened, and as the market started to fall more than their models predicted, certainly the initial high-frequency traders that absorbed liquidity by buying, they were caught long and wrong. And when they turned around and needed to flatten out, they sold stock and consume liquidity quicker than anyone could hope to hit any bid. And you have that element of the flash crash, and and I think Kirilenko terms that the hot potato trading in the second flash crash report. He's dead on. If you take that and you combine it with the response and the behavior of the internalizers in the marketplace and how they treated retail orders on that day of stress, 
you have a recipe for disaster. Describe internalizers. Define that term for us. Well, the very fact that internalizers exist is beyond my comprehension as it goes against best execution. But what internalizers do, and there's, uh, I'd rather not name them on, uh, on your program, but you know, everyone knows who they are. But large firms, the internalizers will buy orders from retail providers. So, for example, if you go to any online broker and you look at how they route orders, they don't just route your order to the primary exchange or where the best bid or the best offer is. There's a reason why retail only gets charged $8 a trade, and it's because the, those brokerage firms are making the money up by selling those orders to other brokerage firms, big wholesalers. And these wholesalers promise to give them an equivalent execution from what is the main market or competitive with the other market centers. So, you know, for example, Ameritrade sells the order to a specific brokerage firm and they decide to take the other side of that order because they can make a penny or two on it. And I would argue that these firms internalize that flow on calm days, not only because they can make a penny or two, but because they're financially modeling those orders. They are, they're using it to model behavior of retail investors in different market conditions. So they know when to cherry pick. They know when to st- take the other side and buy a market sell order that comes in from retail or quote unquote the dumb money. They know when to buy it. And if they don't want to buy it, it's a call option. They just exhaust it out to the market. Well, guess what happened on May 6th? As the market started plummeting, and retail investors sent in market orders, all right, the internalizers who normally would stand there and absorb that liquidity and offload it in a calm way, in a benign way, close to where they bought it, instead they were like, whoa, we're not, they shut off, and instead of buying that order flow uh, or, or, or filling those buy orders, they just turned around and exhausted them to the market. So the markets not only had high volume to begin with, Okay, from all the speed trading, from all the market making, from all the predatory stuff going on, they had this extra rush of orders being deluged onto the marketplace, these sell orders, all at the same time. And as that happened, a circular effect happened. As that happened, there began to become differences in the data speeds of the real-time market, which is what high-frequency trading firms would see through their direct co-located privileges, and the public tape, the public SIP, the public quote. The public quote was being slowed down, and that difference between that speed and the speed of the co-located servers was increasing. And it became clear that no one really knew what the true price of any security was for those 20 minutes. And during that period, more market makers shut off. And it created this circular spiral, this downward spiral, where there became a vacuum of liquidity. And you saw stocks like Accenture trade, or, and Sam Adams Beer trade down to a penny. Yeah. yeah I remember that. Um, and I think you had Apple shooting up at one point to 100,000 or something like that. Something that went in both directions, I guess. Yeah. And we talk about not only the flash crash from that day, you know, everyone, um, they, we, you know, the term's been coined these mini flash crashes that take place every day, which the SEC's tried to band-aid with circuit breakers and the new limit up, limit down proposal, which we, I'll, I'll get to in a second. But the very fact of the matter is if someone enters an incorrect trade, a fat finger, if you will, okay, that incorrect trade and that, and that error would normally result in okay. I meant to, you know, I I tried to buy an eighteen dollars stock, five thousand shares at eighteen, and I entered one eighteen by mistake. Normally, in a slower, more sensible market, you know, they'd get filled some at eighteen, some at eighteen oh five, some at eighteen ten, some at eighteen twenty, some at eighteen fifty. But with the abilities of market makers to a turn off instantly and create a vacuum, and b other high-frequency trading firms to sense that there's an aggressive order taking stock and jump ahead. What would have been a 5,000 share errant order, which ripped through the market by 50 cents or a dollar, today will snowball into a 300,000 share volume event where the stock will spike $7. That's the danger of our market structure today. 
and that's something that's that's built into it and i don't know how you you legislate around it yeah and to take a very kind of broad perspective of what you just said one of the advantages of high frequency trading and the market fragmentation that you're talking about that's commonly cited is that because it adds liquidity as an institutional investor you never have to worry about somebody being on the other side of the trade but that only really applies in very benign times. In times of stress, the opposite happens. And that's what Andrew Haldane alluded to when he termed that quote we really, really loved, which was that high-frequency traders provide liquidity in a monsoon and they consume it in a drought. Yeah, that's great. Um, you mentioned a second ago uh, some of the recent SEC proposals on how to regulate high-frequency trading, circuit breakers, limit up, limit down rules. I think flash orders are still allowed, and the SEC and FINRA have started – I think I don't think they've done it yet, but they've contemplated the idea of, of getting some of the actual code from these firms, although they've put up some predictable resistance. Can you just get into some of these ideas and, and tell me whether or not you're optimistic that, that they'll help? Well – the SEC has done a few things since the flash crash. You know, one thing, they've implemented those single-stock circuit breakers. So those single-stock circuit breakers, in the most liquid stocks, uh, you know, currently there's a, a 10% band. If, if it rips through by 10%, trading is halted, right? And in less liquid names, that, that threshold is wider. All right, so those thresholds are, are painfully wide to begin with. So I would take issue with that to begin with. You know, if you're going to instill confidence in the market so that investors come back, so it stops being a game of, uh, you know, Call of Duty 4 and teenagers sniping at each other all day long, if we're really going to get to a marketplace where it's focused on investing and the exchange of capital, you know, there has to be some changes that make the market more friendly and protective of investors. So one of the things they tried to do was single-stock circuit breakers, and they've helped all right, they probably eliminated so much, so many more of these rips that um, we talk about that were going on every day, and it certainly is a band-aid. That's going to be replaced with something called the limit up, limit down proposal, which is they're borrowing from the futures markets, you know, creating volatility bands that are you know X percent wide around each stock, and you know that is an improvement over the single stock circuit breakers. But these proposals, the SEC didn't even write the limit up, limit down proposal. It was written by a, a consortium of exchanges. And they're arguing these exchanges over, should the pause be, you know, when something hits this threshold, should it be one minute? Should it be 15 seconds? Or should it be only five seconds or three seconds? Or should we even have a pause? And the fact that these guys wrote the proposal and they're contemplating a pause to instill calm and let people gain their footing and they're measuring this pause in 15-second increments shows you that there's flaws in that proposal. But it is an improvement over what we have now. In addition, the SEC's uh, you know, eliminated quote-unquote stub quotes, but it, they haven't been eliminated. And what, what do I mean? Well, stub quotes, market makers in the marketplace get advantages. They get better rebates. They have a whole set of rules that they're allowed to do, you know, parity trades, benefits that are bestowed on them, and certainly their co-location, based on the fact that they're going to provide liquidity and two-sided markets to investors. Well, guess what? The exchanges have helped these firms come up with two-sided markets using automated software that automatically plugs the other side you know, so drastically away from from uh, from where the stock is trading, and those stub quote rules is what originally made allowed Accenture to actually trade down to a penny, right? Well, now with the elimination of stub quotes, there's still a band around them, and they want market makers to quote say 10% wide or 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 in a 10% band around the current price. So, if IBM is trading at $186. Is the fact that a market maker is willing to buy, uh, you know, 500 shares of IBM at $170, does that give you confidence in the current price? Is that helping you? So the, the stub quote rules still are you know, a source of contention. One final thing that the SEC has done, which we're, we're very happy, they've really tightened up on sponsored access. 
and eliminated just naked, you know, renting of the acronym without proper risk controls. Let me ask you about a financial transactions tax. This is something that's been discussed quite a bit recently. It has a fair amount of support in Europe, less here in the States. Is this a good idea? I disagree. I don't think a tax is the way to go. You do not want to discourage, you know, market participants or the owners of the market and and add an extra cost onto them for trading, for making markets more liquid, which will make, in turn, spur capital formation because you have a liquid secondary market. Rather, there are some abuses in the system that instead, rather than putting a blanket tax on everybody, there are better ways to do it. And one of the ideas that we've heard floated is an excess usage fee or excess cancellation fee. If you're putting in bids and offers and 99% of your bids and offers don't even get executed and you're slowing down the tape and you're not providing liquidity and those cancellations are taxing bandwidth and raising the cost of tracking market data for everybody, then you should be forced to pay that. Just as if, you're, uh, if you have a teenage son who gets into a car accident you know, every 19 days, his insurance should be higher. So I think a better way to, uh, to attach some of the costs of this system uh, and place it with those placing the burdens and making the system more unsafe is to have an excess cancel fee, if you will. And I think that's a much better mechanism than putting a financial tax on the entire system, which could have effects. You know, it, it's creating more problems than it's fixing. Yeah. In your presentation at the Big Picture Conference, you mentioned that there was some good news taking place around high-frequency trading recently, which is that some of these firms are, I think the term you used was eating their own lunch, and they're starting to consolidate. Certainly, there's been a wave of consolidations around um, for the exchanges. Can you just talk about that a little bit and what you think that means for the future of, of high-frequency trading? Well, I, I think high-frequency trading is here to stay because the technology will always go forward, all right? But where we were two years ago was a really horrible place where uh, their ability to maneuver was so far head and shoulders above the rest of what the marketplace was understanding, including the regulators. I think that's changed today. First of all, institutions and investors have become very aware. High-frequency trading is talked about in the media all the time. It was featured on 60 Minutes. The very fact that people are becoming educated about it and criticizing it in itself has had a policing effect on the behavior of the more detrimental types of high-frequency trading. Now, you add into that that the industry, that industry has grown so much it's grown so much that you even see ads, you know, when I bring up, you know, Zero Hedge or if I bring up uh, your website or maybe not your website, but other websites, you know, if I've Googled high-frequency trading, I start to get things in the right-hand column that tell me um, how you can high-frequency trade from home or how anyone can do it, right? It goes to show you that even that part of the market has become a little bit bubblicious. I really hope Alphaville isn't running any ads like that on its site. <laughs> yeah, I use a bad example, my friend. <laughs> but uh, the whole point is, you know, they've, as more of, as more of them have come into the marketplace, uh, they've diminished the, the marginal profitability of, uh, of the group as a whole has declined. And as that as it declines, maybe it discourages new high-frequency trading firms from coming into place, and that's a hope. And maybe institutions focusing and protecting themselves more against the more detrimental types of this uh, of, of HFT, maybe that's going to help as well. That's already been happening, and maybe the free market solve some of these issues. There are now finally some free market solutions being floated out there, new trading venues, going back to blind call markets, you know, we'll have blind crossing networks. Maybe, you know, things like that is going to pull investors away from feeding the fuel of these short-term traders, and they'll just eat each other's lunch and eat themselves up. That's the hope, because the market belongs to the owners, not the renters. Yeah, and I think think one of the ideas that your partner at Themis, Joe Saluzzi, brought up was uh, having a sort of a two-highway market so that when a company wants to issue securities, they can have a choice of issuing them either in a marketplace where it's, you know, only, I guess I guess you'd call them low-frequency traders or one where it's sort of open to everyone. Um, does sound unrealistic, right? Uh, it does. 
and presented that simply, it's probably unworkable. But I can tell you right now, meeting with IR people, investor relations people for these corporations, they're absolutely outraged. They do not, uh, the ones that understand what's going on are outraged. And the other half of the group are not aware that the model has changed so drastically as it has in the last 10 years. So I think we're going to hit a point where there's going to be pressure on the regulators to A, clamp down on detrimental behavior among HFT participants, and B, maybe pull back some of their regulations. So, for example, Reg NMS, uh, all orders, all market centers have to interact with each other. Well, guess what? If you relax that restriction and you give mutual funds a choice, I bet you Fidelity would much prefer to trade blocks of 5, 10, 20, 50, 100,000 shares with other institutions in a market that's maybe four cents wide instead of a penny wide, okay? But they're, they're, they're getting much more done with much less leakage. If you present that opportunity or that option, I think the free market will seize on that relaxed restriction and solving investor problems in the marketplace because those investor problems that we have now, for a while there seemed to be no solution because there's no way to not touch the high-frequency trading sweaty handshake. I want to also just get to a couple of maybe challenges, objections to your point of view two in particular that have come across and give you a chance to respond to those. One is just what's been found by academic studies that you've been critical of. And most of these studies have have shown sort of the the conventional notion that the bid-ask spreads have been compressed, transaction costs are down, competition is up, and that although we can point to some connections and maybe to some circumstantial evidence... A lot of the anomalies that we've discussed in the last, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour are coincidental factors rather than something necessarily caused by the rise of high-frequency trading and that there's actually not much evidence that they've thrown things off. So you've been critical of a lot of these studies. Give us a sense of of why you think uh, we can dismiss them. Well, uh, I'm not suggesting that we can dismiss every study that's out there, but I'll point out a few things. First of all, uh, a gentleman named R.T. Luchtkafer, who I believe has contributed to your blog, he's actually collaborated with us and on my site and on the SEC's website. Um, he submitted to the SEC, here, I want, here are a list of 20 studies that prove or say, and they're unconflicted, that high-frequency trading has been damaging volatility, spreads, etc. They've damaged more than they've helped. There's 20 studies out there, more than that. I'd love your readers to know that that bibliography is out there so that anytime someone says that there aren't any studies and there's no real proof that high-frequency trading is harmful, they can go look at these studies because it's not something that Joe or I said. It's something that other people have studied as well. Going back to the studies that cheerlead high-frequency trading and how efficient it's made the market, I would, A, I would suggest to your readers that they, um, and your listeners that they actually examine the source. Who funded them? Was it funded by Knight Capital Markets? Was it funded by a brokerage firm or several exchanges? Who gave them the data? Was the data in one-second in- increments? Um, was it a subset of data? We need it. Sure. And the second objection I want to raise is, I guess, what you might call the, the who cares defense which is that if you're an institutional buy-and-hold investor, essentially you can, you can sit the whole thing out, right? So if, if you're playing the markets you know, in the short term, then yeah, you might get screwed as, as prices fluctuate and you get things like the flash crash or mini flash crashes and things like that. But over time, prices will still broadly follow the fundamentals and institutional investors and retail investors always have that option to just be longer-term investors. So what, what's your response to that? All right. And, and we've heard that objection categorized as, oh, it's only a penny or two. All right. Well, A, I would say it's not only a penny or two, because I can't tell you how many orders um, take place, institutional orders in the marketplace, which are, let's say, a VWAP algorithmic order. So a mutual fund is selling stock through a VWAP algo. And if they got out of the algorithm for half an hour, that stock would pop not by a penny or two, all right? It would pop by 40 cents. So 
the very fact that so much of the order flow in the market is done not only by the high-frequency trading, but by these automated mechanisms which are predicted and predictable and used by high-frequency traders, that a lot of pricing in the market is, I don't know how to say it, but managed, all right? So, you know, beating the VWAP is, is almost a nonsensical notion. I'd rather buy it at 40 cents and miss the VWAP by 10 cents than buy it at 70 and beat the VWAP by a nickel. And folks need to understand that because our modern way of looking at transaction costs is flawed and it's focusing on the wrong things. All right. Secondly, regarding investors and why should they care if they have a long-term nature, well, they should care because a market structure, which is set up with so much volatility and in such a two-tiered fashion, is basically pushing a lot of folks out of the market. They don't trust it. And when they don't trust it, they don't play. And when there are fewer long-term investors playing, all right, the market is less likely to be reflecting actual values of the underlying assets, even in the long term. And secondly, when long-term investors flee the market, like they've done you know, repeatedly in, in uh, mutual fund outflows month after month after month, the just general capital base and pie becomes smaller. And that's going to affect everybody. So it's not only a penny or two. All right. It's a penny or two, maybe if, it, if you're buying one stock, Citigroup or Bank of America, and you buy it and you put it away for 15 years. If in 15 years I were to approach you as a lawyer and say, do you want to be part of a class action lawsuit? I mean, I doubt you would get very much money. All right. So that's not the issue. But it's the fact that it's more than a penny or two in the lower strata capitalization stocks and that it's affecting confidence in the market. And why wouldn't you have a market structure set up where everyone is treated fairly? Well, I want to close by asking about your past, your own motivation for taking up this cause and and how it relates to your experience at Instanet and now at Themis. What's your goal here and and why did you choose to pursue this particular subject? Uh, It almost wasn't a, a, a choice. It was almost like we stumbled into it. Quite frankly, we weren't seeking any publicity. We've operated as Themis Trading for, you know, seven, eight years before we've even wrote our first paper, Toxic Equity Trading on Wall Street in 2008. So that's not what motivated us, that we wanted to be in the forefront of a discussion. All we wanted to do was get better performance for our mutual fund clients. And as we started turning over rocks and finding inequalities or things that are just wrong in the marketplace, we began to get more outraged. And as we get more outraged, we would tell our clients, and then they would tell their friends. And really, this movement, I think we were were one of the few firms that really were at the forefront of it, uh, and there are more there now. But we're in our position now because, you know, we care about the markets, and we want this to be a market and an economy that is good for our children. So this sounds corny, but I can tell you right now, it's not for a conflicted interest. You know, we're a small firm now. We were a small firm then. We'll stay a small firm 10 years from now because that's what we want to do. But we want the system fixed so that it could be a healthy ecosystem for all participants to play. Our guest today has been Sal Arnick of Themis Trading. Sal, thanks for being on Alpha Chat. Cardiff, my pleasure. Thanks to Mari Hall for the music and Sally Herships, our sound engineer. This podcast was recorded at CDM Studios in New York. Take care. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.